Be seated. I grew up sometimes feeling like I was born in the wrong family. This feeling was intensified by the fact, when I reflected on it, that my last name is Langley, and my grandparents who raised me are the Rices. Add to that the fact that my mother never married a Langley, and you have a recipe for childhood confusion. I was raised on a farm, but my grandparents swear to this day that I was born a city boy, since I had absolutely no interest in animals or farm life. I was a first-generation college student, and my grandparents were sure I would be a professional student. Both my mother and father were drug users from their teenage years, and my father spent years in prison for drug trafficking. Nevertheless, I can look back now on my childhood and my upbringing and see how God used those years of confusion to shape me into the man I am today. When the Lord saved me from my sin, he didn't take me out of my family. Gradually, over the years, he has taught me to see my family and my upbringing through a biblical lens. And while not detaching me from my family, he has certainly transplanted me into a larger family And for that, I am eternally grateful. Jesus says some challenging things about family. Following Jesus can cause family strife. And we've already seen in Matthew's gospel how Jesus taught that allegiance to him, following him, must take precedence even over family loyalty. If loyalty to family conflicts with or hinders from loyalty to Jesus, it's loyalty to Jesus that must win. Sometimes, though not in my own personal case, sometimes salvation does include God rescuing people from their families. Or perhaps we could say it better, sometimes, maybe always, salvation includes God rescuing people from the negative influences of their family. That's what we see today in our passage. We're going to read Matthew 12, verses 38 to 50 in just a moment. But I want to set you up to notice all the family language in this passage. At first, when you read through this section, the three segments of the passage don't seem to fit real well together. But when you notice the family language throughout, you can see the theme that binds this section tightly together. Jesus is going to address this generation, an important recurring phrase in Matthew's gospel. Remember that a generation, biblically, refers to a family lineage. You'll hear Jesus chastise this generation for being adulterous. That's a reference to unfaithfulness in marriage. In verse 44, we're going to hear about a person being referred to as a demon's house. 
and a house is the home of a family. Finally, we'll hear references to Jesus' mother and siblings and to his heavenly father. Jesus is going to pronounce condemnation on this generation. And so the call to individual Jews in his audience could be summarized in the later words of the Apostle Peter, recorded in Acts 2.40, be saved from this crooked generation. And the message of this passage is that in order to be saved from this generation, you've got to become one of Jesus' disciples and thereby become part of his new family. This generation refers to the Jewish family of Jesus' day, led by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are leading this generation to certain condemnation. Let's read the whole passage. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold... His mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now let's go back and consider the sign for this generation from verses 38 to 40. The Pharisees bring along some of their best-trained scribes, the Jewish scholars of their day, and they come demanding a sign from Jesus. By this point, they've heard about and seen with their own eyes Jesus performing miracles of various sorts. He's healed people, he's cast out demons, he's cleansed lepers, and that's just the miracles that they know about. They can't deny his miracle-working power, but some of them have suggested that his power comes from Satan rather than from God. So here they come, demanding some sign, but they must be calling for some dramatically powerful sign. 
Something that couldn't be ascribed to Satan's power. Perhaps he could walk across the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps he could change the weather just by speaking. Or maybe they're thinking full apocalyptic. Maybe Jesus could command the sun to go dark in the middle of the day. Or command the moon to go dark in the middle of the night. Or direct the stars to fall from heaven to the ground on his command. Whatever they're looking for, Jesus doesn't work for them. His miracles are intended truly to function as signs. That is, they do signify that Jesus is the Messiah. And some of them certainly communicate that he is God in the flesh. But he will not perform them on demand. He will not exercise his divine power merely to prove a point. Instead, as he said when they accused him of depending on the power of the devil to cast out demons, Jesus relies on the power of the Holy Spirit to do these great deeds. And he does so following the will of his heavenly Father. But in rejecting their demand for a sign, he gives a reason. And in doing so, he identifies what's wrong with these people. They are representatives of an evil and adulterous generation. He already implied that the Pharisees who accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and would never be forgiven for their unrepentant, hardened, eternal sin. But the whole generation, the entire family of the Jewish people at this time are characterized as evil. The scribes and Pharisees are not simply expressing their own opinions here, their own curiosity. Their demand for a sign from Jesus reflects the general populace's continued uncertainty about who Jesus is, even in the face of such great miracles. Jesus also characterizes this generation as adulterous Hearkening back to the Old Testament prophets, Jesus recognizes his contemporary Jewish people as continuing in the idolatry, the spiritual adultery that provoked the Lord to send them into exile in the first place. God has graciously brought the Jews back to the land of Israel, but they have not returned to faithfulness to him. Their idolatry no longer takes the form of building and worshiping the statues of the false gods of the nations. Now, their idolatry takes the form of worshiping themselves and is seeking to establish their own righteousness, goaded by the Pharisees developing human traditions that contradict God's law. And we'll see more about that later in Matthew's Gospel. This generation in Jesus' day is no different than the generation of Israelites in the wilderness. The Lord described that generation as an evil generation in Deuteronomy 1.35. And only two out of that generation would make it into the promised land. But the next generation, the generation that actually will cross the Jordan River in to the promised land of Canaan, the Lord describes as a crooked and twisted generation in Deuteronomy 32.5. And in Deuteronomy 32.20, they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. The Jews of Jesus' day are just as evil, just as unfaithful, 
just as twisted. Jesus then rejects outright their demand for a sign, but then adds that God will actually give them a sign, the sign of Jonah. We just reflected on and celebrated Jesus' last week on earth, leading up to his victorious resurrection last Sunday. I hesitate to go down this road, but some of you will be aware of the problem the sign of Jonah presents for our understanding of what happened that last week of Jesus' life. So I'll try to be brief. Some of this is technical. And you can always ask me for more details later if this is something that bothers you or troubles you. Jesus quotes Jonah 1.17 in verse 40, highlighting Jonah's experience. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And then Jesus adds, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The question that must be asked is, should we take Jesus' prophetic words here literally? That is to say, is Jesus indicating that his dead body will be in the grave precisely three days and three nights? In other words, must we believe that Jesus' dead body laid in the tomb a full 72 hours because of what Jesus says here? Many folks have indeed insisted that we must take this prophecy literally. And therefore, Jesus couldn't have died on Good Friday and been raised on Easter Sunday. This has led these folks to conclude that Jesus actually died on Wednesday, or some folks suggest Thursday, and was raised either on Saturday late or Sunday early. Now, I wouldn't even mention this if this were only believed by some fringe movement in Christianity. Though it is a minority view, it has at least one well-known and highly respected proponent, Chuck Swindoll. When I heard Chuck Swindoll teach this on the radio a few years ago, I began to take this perspective seriously. At the same time, I had a well-studied man in my church in Texas who had come to this conviction as well. And he was allowed to teach this perspective in a Wednesday night Bible study. He felt so strongly about it that as a parting gift when I moved up here, he purchased a book for me that he had found helpful arguing for this position. Well, I've read the book and considered Chuck Swindoll's explanation and argumentation, and I remain unconvinced. I won't go into full, to a full explanation here, but let me pinpoint the two key issues and a third that is important as well. First, generally speaking, a first principle in biblical interpretation is that we allow clearer passages to shape our understanding of more ambiguous or complicated passages. This reference to three days and three nights in the heart of the earth is the outlier in all of Jesus' many prophecies about his death and resurrection. The usual language he uses is after three days or on the third day. This detail alone seems to eliminate Swindoll's perspective. If Jesus died on Wednesday night and rose from the dead on Sunday morning, then Jesus rose on the fourth day, not the third day. Thus, Swindoll's position creates a new problem, a contradiction in Scripture. Second, it should not be assumed that the phrase three days and three nights is intended to be a literally 
72-hour period of time in the Bible. There aren't very many parallels to this, but there are a couple. The closest parallel occurs in 1 Samuel 30, verse 12. Just a very obscure story where a certain Egyptian man had been brought to David, and this man had been sick so that he hadn't eaten anything or drunk anything, the text says, for three days and three nights. But then in verse 13, the man told David, I fell sick three days ago. Or take Esther's call to fast, for the Jews to fast for three days, night or day. Similar phraseology, same time frame probably, Esther 4.16. And after the completion of that fast, she would famously approach the king. Two verses later, in chapter 5, verse 1, the narrator describes what happened next as on the third day. Esther approached the king, proposed a feast that same day. Now, in both of these examples, the reference to three days and three nights could be taken literally. but It doesn't have to be. And it creates a tension there, or potential problem, if you do. There's evidence in other ancient literature outside the Bible as well that the phrase three days and three nights could be, could, could be used as a figure of speech or a round number. And the Jews do typically count parts of days as full days. So, but if we just consider the source material and the actual wording of Jesus, what Jesus is thinking about when he says these words... We actually find some clues that Jesus may have intended this as a cryptic statement using figurative language. He uses the phrase, in the heart of the earth. That's where he says he'll be for three days and three nights. When we read that phrase, we automatically assume that that's a reference to his tomb. And that's probably right. However, remember that he's comparing his experience with the experience of Jonah the prophet. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, the sea monster, not a whale, for three days and three nights. That was a quotation from Jonah 1.17. The narrator of Jonah made that comment. But the next verses in the book of Jonah record Jonah's poetic prayer. In that prayer, Jonah speaks as though he had died. Instead of speaking of being in the belly of the fish, in Jonah 2.2, he speaks of praying out of the belly of Sheol. The fish was like his tomb. But then in the next verse, he spoke of God casting him into the hearts of the seas. Then down in verse 6, he spoke of being at the roots of the mountains. And he adds, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The word for land is the normal word also translated earth. It seems that Jesus connected the phrase heart of the seas with the reference to going down into the earth and made up the phrase the heart of the earth, which doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. So Jesus is taking figurative language from Jonah's prayer and creatively crafting it into a figurative description for his own experience of death. So as one writer summarizes the key point here, Jonah's body is in the fish, grave, while his soul, metaphorically, is in Sheol, 
Jesus' body is in the heart of the earth, his grave, while his soul literally is in the place of the dead. Now, that was long and technical. However, we end up understanding Jesus' reference to his being in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. We have to square it with everything else the Gospels say about the timing of his death and resurrection. In my view, there are still too many clear indicators that Jesus died on Friday and rose on Sunday. That this isolated, obscure reference to the sign of Jonah cannot overturn. In other words... This reference must be read in light of the other more clear, more straightforward prophecies of Jesus' death and resurrection and not the other way around. But what's the point that Jesus is making here? Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees that his death and resurrection are the only sign that this generation is going to get from God. In Matthew's Gospel... This would count as Jesus' first announcement of his death and resurrection. There's an important point for, here, for us here, too. The gospel stands on its own. The events of the death and resurrection of Jesus are the gospel events, and they are the climactic message of God to humanity. God worked signs and wonders in the book of Acts to encourage people to listen to the apostles and prophets as they laid the foundation of the church in their spirit-inspired preaching and teaching. When Jesus speaks of signs and wonders from now on in his ministry, he warns about their danger. He warns about how false prophets and false messiahs will use powerful displays to deceive and manipulate One writer says this, people who are looking for the spectacular or the extraordinary become distracted so that they do not always see how great is the way God orders ordinary processes to meet the needs of his people. Far more mature is the faith that sees God's hand of providence working in the Lord's daily ordering of life than a faith that depends on constantly seeing the spectacular. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what we must draw people with. There's an old saying, what you win them with is what you win them to. If we seek to attract non-believers with great showmanship and stagecraft, if we seek to draw unbelievers with spectacular displays, if we seek to pull in the masses with cute entertainment, or if we seek to lure vulnerable people by promising them healing or wealth or power, that is what they will expect. And that is what they will depend on. And that is what they will clamor for. I, for one, prefer to preach only Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. So it is that this generation of Jesus' day is looking for the wrong things. And he goes on to condemn this generation sharply in verses 41 and 42. 
After having promised the coming sign of Jonah, he compares this generation with the Ninevites of Jonah's generation. We recall that Jonah ended up in the belly of the great fish because he initially refused to travel to Nineveh to announce God's judgment against them. Now, I'm afraid we have a tendency to misread the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. Our children's story Bibles might be causing some confusion on this point for us. Did the people of Nineveh convert to worshiping Yahweh? Did they get saved? Our children's story Bibles tend to paint that kind of picture for us, but if you go home and read the book of Jonah, I assure you it doesn't ever say that. Think about the message Jonah preached. All he told them was recorded in Jonah 3, 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now it's possible that that statement is just a summary. But given what we know about Jonah and his reluctance to preach the message the Lord gave him, I suspect that was it. Jonah doesn't tell them which God is going to overthrow them. Jonah doesn't even tell them to repent. He words the message as though it's a done deal. He simply announces their doom. The narrator tells us that they believed God. They recognized that Jonah was speaking for a God, and they believed the message. What did they believe? They believed that their destruction was on the divine calendar. They believed that they had just over a month before they were going to be wiped out by some divine judgment. And in light of that, they put on all the signs of repentance that they could think of. They even went so far as to put sackcloth on their animals and refused to let them eat. And indeed, they modified their behavior. They repented of their violent ways. I like the way the VeggieTales story paints it. They were guilty of slapping each other with fishes. And they stopped doing that afterward. I think that's exactly what it was. <laughs> and in light of that, God chose to express his mercy toward them. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's Jonah 3.10. All of that falls far short of salvation by grace through faith. All of that falls far short of God counting their faith as righteousness. And don't forget that barely one generation later, God announced the doom of Nineveh through the prophet Nahum. And then he went through with it. I believe what Jesus says here puts the nail in the coffin of the Ninevites. Notice carefully what Jesus says in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. With this generation. The word rise up is a resurrection word. If this generation, 
led by the Pharisees in unbelief and rejection of Jesus, is going to face eternal condemnation on Judgment Day. They will experience the second resurrection, described in Revelation 20, verses 12 to 15. This is the resurrection of judgment Jesus spoke of in John 5, 29. This is when the men of Nineveh, who repented in response to Jonah's preaching, will be resurrected. And this is when this generation of Jewish people in Jesus' day will be resurrected. Thus, what Jesus is saying here is that the men of Nineveh's small response, but positive response, to Jonah's vague and unclear preaching is much better than the Jews of this generation who hear Jesus' very clear preaching and witness His very clear miracles and yet reject Him and accuse Him of being in league with Satan. The wicked men of Nineveh, pagan Gentiles that they were, are far more righteous than the Jews of Jesus' day. And Jesus adds, something greater than Jonah is here. Thus what Jesus... Jesus is then going to go on here and add a second witness, as it were. Another Gentile. This time, a famous woman from the Old Testament. The Queen of the South. The Queen of Sheba, whose story is told in 1 Kings 10, will be resurrected with this generation, again, in the second resurrection, before God's great white throne. And she will put to shame these Jews who reject their Messiah. She, a pagan Gentile woman, traveled over a thousand miles to see if the rumors of King Solomon's wisdom were true. She heard rumors of King Solomon's unsurpassed wisdom, and even these rumors motivated her to risk a long and expensive venture. And once she heard Solomon's wise words for herself... She left him with lavish gifts and acknowledged his divine endowment. But none of that indicates that she converted to worshiping Solomon's God alone. Jesus has come to the people of this generation. Jesus has come, God in the flesh, teaching and preaching wisdom, yes, but more than wisdom. He comes presenting God's word in its fullness. And the Pharisees are not drawn by that. Instead, they are repulsed. Jesus is far greater than Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. Solomon was the great temple builder. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, up to that point at least. Gifted uniquely by the one true God. Jesus is God's wisdom incarnate. Jesus is greater than the temple made with hands in Jerusalem. He is the true temple of God. The person in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. He is the greatest temple builder in history. He allows the temple of His body to be destroyed and He rebuilds it in three days. And He builds an eternal temple not made with hands, using the living stones who are His followers. Jesus 
is greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. He is God in the flesh, the greatest prophet, the highest priest, and the true king over all. His warning in these verses needs to come across to our generation today as well. The resurrection of judgment is coming. Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The way he worded it here makes it sound like this resurrection was going to happen all at once at the same time. But the book of Revelation clarifies that there will be a gap of 1,000 years between these two resurrections. Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Then, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, describes the resurrection of judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Know this. You will be raised from the dead. Beware of demanding signs. You have heard of Jesus dying and rising. You have heard the gospel proclaimed. Beware of thinking. If only you could prove it. If only God would perform a miracle or some spectacular display to convince me. You will be raised from the dead. And that kind of thinking will ensure that you are raised from the dead with this generation. Jesus was addressing. If you would have a better resurrection, you must believe God's word. Believe in Jesus, the God-man who died and rose from the dead outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. I'm asking you to believe a historical fact that a certain well-documented event took place that has as much 
corroborating evidence and more eyewitness testimony available than most events you believe took place from reading accounts in your junior high history books. But more than that, I'm asking you to trust a person named Jesus. A person I know and have a relationship with today. I know Him. And you can get to know Him too. If you trust Him today, if you orient your everyday living around Him and His teaching in the Bible, He promises a good resurrection. A resurrection of life and joy and peace forever in a wonderful new creation. Back in Matthew 12, Jesus continues announcing the demonic doom of this generation Verses 43 to 45 seem to be a parable. What one writer is entitled, The Parable of Demonic Habitation. The point of the parable is at the end of verse 45. So also will it be with this generation. Let's read through verses 43 to 45 again. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The parable depicts the demonization of a man. An unclean spirit has been treating a man's body as his house. But the unclean spirit then leaves, probably because it had been cast out. Since this is evidently a parable, we should probably exercise caution about drawing too many conclusions about demons and their habits from this story. That's not the point. Ultimately, the point is that a person who has been set free from demonic occupation needs to have something else happen rather than simply cleaning up and emptying out the house of his life. Jesus depicts this person as being clean on the outside, but remaining empty on the inside. This leaves the person vulnerable to further demonic occupation. Thus, we may get a hint here that many of the people Jesus cast demons out of did not and would not actually believe in him. Trust Him for eternal life. Jesus was kind to them to set them free from their suffering. But if they didn't turn away from their sin and turn to follow Him in faith, then they have left themselves open to further trouble later on. However, Jesus' point is not about individuals here. It's about this generation. He's essentially turning the tables on the Pharisees Whereas they had earlier accused him of being empowered by Satan, he's now accusing them of being inhabited by demons. Earlier, Jesus called the Pharisees brood of vipers, the seed of the serpent, associating them with the Satan-inhabited snake in the Garden of Eden. In John's Gospel, Jesus directly refers to Satan as their father. Here, Jesus is highlighting his messianic ministry of setting captives free. 
He is the spirit-empowered servant of the Lord who has invaded Satan's kingdom, tied him up, and he has been casting unclean spirits out of people, plundering Satan's goods. If the Jewish people see this work, even the Jewish people who directly benefited from this powerful work and yet do not come to follow Jesus, if they do not receive Jesus into the house of their life, if Jesus does not take up permanent residence, they will be doomed to further wickedness and greater satanic bondage. The other side of this warning is a warning against moralism. Beware of moralism, folks. Moralism focuses on the things you've got to do. Moralism elevates our work for God above God's work on our behalf. Moralism believes that if I clean up my life, if I get everything just right, if I'm nice to other people, then God will accept me. Moralism is a house empty, swept, and put in order. Moralism is what the Pharisees embodied and taught. Keep the Sabbath perfectly, they said, and then God will send the Messiah. Never eat or touch any unclean animals, they said, and then God will send us His Spirit. Avoid all contact with Gentiles, they said, and then God will save us and punish them. Moralism creeps into the church among Christians. You hear it on the radio. You read it in popular Christian books. Dare to be a Daniel. Be brave like Esther. Lead like Nehemiah. Topple the giants in your life like David. Now few would say, if you dare to be a Daniel, if you're brave like Esther, if you lead like Nehemiah, and if you conquer giants like David, then God will save you or bless you. Few will say that. But, if that's all, or if that's what you emphasize when you preach these stories, or when you read these stories in the Bible, if you write a 250-page book that expounds one of these stories and gives you five steps to be like these biblical characters, or if, if one more author or preacher stands up and says, you need to get your five smooth stones like David, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) Sorry. This approach quickly loses sight of God's grace entirely. This approach abandons the gospel. You can be brave and bold, You can develop savvy leadership strategies and you can overcome crazy big obstacles in your life and you can do it all without Jesus' shed blood and righteousness. That, my friends, is moralism. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will show how Peter's merely human reasoning, human logic... Human, logical thinking put him on the side of Satan. This evil generation looks pretty good on the outside. I could say that about the Jews of Jesus' day. And I could say that about a lot of people in a lot of places. I used to could 
There comes my East Texan coming out. I used to could say that (laughs) about this country. This country looks pretty good on the outside. But could it be that our nation's history fits very well in this parable? Just as much as the Jews of Jesus' day, the American people of our generation, need Jesus to take up permanent residence. And by the way, I could preach this to any people on the planet at any time in history. So, what is the only hope for this generation? The final verses of chapter 12 show that the only hope for this generation is that the people of this generation would join a new family. Jesus' mother, Mary, and his siblings came to speak with Jesus while he was teaching. Matthew carefully characterizes them as outside. Now, at one level, that's just a comment about their location. They're outside the house where Jesus is teaching. However, Matthew seems to be implying more. Mary and her other children are not following Jesus as disciples at this point. At this point in Jesus' ministry, Mark tells us that Jesus' family, which I think must include his mother Mary, and his siblings, her other children, they believed that Jesus was insane, not that he was Lord and Messiah. This, in spite of the words the angel Gabriel spoke so clearly to Mary before Jesus' miraculous conception. Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity. He is not rejecting his family per se. However, he is indicating that even his birth mother, even his blood relatives, must become part of his family, must become part of his family. Mary doesn't get saved apart from trusting her son. Mary doesn't receive eternal life apart from believing in Jesus as God in the flesh. Even though she carried him in her womb, even though she nourished him with her milk, even though she provided for him physically all his growing up years, none of that earns her a place in Jesus' eternal family. What family resemblance does Jesus point to? How can you be a part of the family of God? Or what is the mark of being a part of the family of God? According to Jesus here, it is doing God's will. Doing God's will is the mark of Jesus' family. Wait. Did he he say that? Did he say doing God's will? Or did he say believing in Jesus? Believing in Him is the mark of Jesus' family. Look again at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And he seems to be suggesting that at this moment, his mother Mary and her other children are not doing the will of his heavenly Father. His disciples are doing the will of the Father. What are they doing, by the way? When he makes this comment, as he points to his disciples, they are sitting and listening to his teaching. They are hearing his word. They're acting like disciples, students, learners. 
We do know, by the way, that Mary and at least some of his brothers did the will of his heavenly Father and became disciples of Jesus. We know this for sure from Acts 1.14. After Jesus ascended to heaven, Luke describes how, he, how the eleven remaining apostles returned to Jerusalem as Jesus had instructed them, and then we read these words. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Two of his brothers went on to write spirit-inspired scripture, James and Jude. So how can people be saved from this evil generation, become a part of Jesus' family? As it turns out, the Jews are in the wrong family. The Jews, the chosen nation, who banked on their descent from Abraham as the key to everything, the key to eternal life, the key to relationship with God, the key to salvation, as long as they are part of this evil generation, they are in the wrong family. And they will die in their sins. And so will you, friend, if you do not do the will of God. So... Am I preaching moralism after all? No, I don't think so. Jesus said in John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If you believe in Jesus, you become part of His true family. You become one of His disciples. And then, once you're part of his family, you begin to take on the family resemblance. You are increasingly conformed to the image of God's eternal Son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We learn to walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus by the instruction of the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the Scriptures. So the end of, matter, the, end of the matter is this. Get adopted... If you don't know Jesus, how can you get into his family? Get adopted. You must be adopted into the family. Jesus died on the cross so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's a gift. Sonship in the family of God is offered to you today free of charge as a gift from God totally by grace. Adoption is a legal reality, making someone a legal heir of a father's property. Adopted sons get full inheritance rights, but they also get the privilege of carrying on the family name. For Christians, our adoption, our sonship, is connected tightly with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Believing in Jesus is not merely getting the outside of the house swept clean and put in order. By no means. Believing in Jesus includes the Spirit taking up permanent residence inside the believer. And he begins a radical renovation project. The Spirit starts throwing furniture out of your house. He gets rid of things like hatred and greed and lust. He does this gradually, but he does it definitively. And he begins to bring in new furniture 
new decor, things like love and contentment, kindness and gentleness, self-control. And since the one who lives in us is far greater than the one who lives in the world, Satan and all his forces, there is never any need for fear that the old homeowner will return to claim his property. The strong man has been bound, his goods have been plundered, and we are the spoils of victory for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite the music team back up to sing a song that reminds us of who we are in God's family. The beauty of intimacy with the Lord is available to all who trust in Him. You can know Him, and better, far better, far more important, He gets to know you intimately, personally. And that's what being in the family of God is all about ultimately. That He conforms us to the image of His Son so that we can be like Him. But it starts at the very foundation with trusting Him in the first place. And it's a beautiful thing to remember that He knows our name. Would you stand and sing with us?